Good morning. I trust you're all well. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 6, and we'll follow just uh, the first seven verses today as we continue in the series that Cam has commenced or Acts reenacted. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against those of the Aramaic-speaking community because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It is not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who were known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn their responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of the God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now we could have a three-part sermon this morning. We could look at the problem. There was a squabble between two groups of people. The proposal gets the men to sort it out. And the participants seeing what kind of men they were. But we won't. We'll just look through this passage verse by verse to see what nuggets of gold God has for us. This passage has often been referred to. In fact, the heading on uh, my Bible here says the choosing of the seven. But often you'll find in commentators and other versions it actually says the choosing of of the first deacons. Now, it's not altogether correct because nowhere in this passage are they referred to as deacons. But the word from which deacons comes is mentioned three times. There are four words that I'm aware of, at least four, in the Greek that are translated into our English as servant. Deacon is one of them, diakonos is one of them. And if you look carefully at verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against those of the Aramaic-speaking community because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The word there for distribution is diakonos, ministry, ministration. Then if you look at verse 2, the disciples said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God to wait on tables. The word for wait on tables is the same word, to minister to tables. And then in verse 4, surprise, surprise, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, the same word. The word of servitude a word of serving others, a word of ministering. 
And if we haven't understood that to be a servant is the essence of being a follower of Christ, then we've missed the whole point. For to serve is divine. It's recorded of the Lord Jesus in Philippians. Though he was God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he took upon himself the form of a servant. Now when he did that, he wasn't saying that now I'm God, now I'll become a servant. The words that he used there in the Greek said he's in the form of God, but he revealed himself also in the form of a servant. And as a servant, what did he do? He became a man. That's when he started the downward steps. And as a man, what did he do? He became obedient unto the death, even the death of a criminal, as a servant. To serve is divine. Our God is a servant God. That's one of the great paradoxes of being a Christian, to understand that Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, is a servant. And if you've stood at the cross and you've seen those blood-stained hands and feet, you've looked at that blood gushing from his wounded side, you've seen the lacerations on his back from the Roman lictors, you've seen the blood from his face from that crown of thorns, You've heard that anguished cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it hasn't touched the proud arrogance of your heart and made you weep for a servant heart, then you've missed the whole point. Because there on the cross, Jesus showed what it was to be a servant. This passage is all about serving. Verse 1 we're told in those days when the number of the disciples was increasing. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Things were happening at a great rate. The last count in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4 had been 5,000 men. You add in the women and children, you're probably looking at something like fifteen to 20,000. No wonder the authorities were getting worried. In chapter 5, they had a great discussion. What are we going to do about this? And Gamaliel, one of the wiser ones, said, let's just wait and see what happens. He was the one who was Paul's teacher. He said, if this is of man, it'll fizzle out. If it's from God, then we better not fight against God. There are times in history when God has intervened in a similar way. It was a, a blessing for us many years ago to be serving God in, in Ethiopia for a short time. But the story of the history of the church in Ethiopia is, is just like reading the book of Acts. In 1935, when the missionaries who had been there for a number of years were forced out by the Italian occupation of Ethiopia, they left behind them, as far as they knew, 37 baptised believers. When they came back, as soon as they were able, and Haile Selassie came in with British aid and drove the Italians out, the uh, missionaries followed in. And they began to hear stories of a mass movement of God that had gone on in southern Ethiopia, numbers between five and 15,000 believers. 
And that tribe, the Walata tribe, became the evangelists who took the gospel to many, many other parts of Ethiopia. And now the church of East Africa that is associated with that group is in the millions. The church spread. But as with all such movements, because they're dealing with human beings, problems began to emerge. I remember talking to my Bible school principal once about a particular problem. I said, why do these things happen in the Christian church? He thought wisely for a moment. Then he said, well, you have to remember, Ian, that the Christian life is always a partnership between God and men. God always keeps his side of the bargain, but men just keep messing it up. And the problem was, we're told, that there were two groups of people, at least, within the church now who were enfolded in the uh, gathering numbers. One were the Aramaic-speaking Jews, the Jews of Palestine. The other were Hellenistic Jews or Greek-speaking Jews who had probably been born in Greece or some of them were proselytes. A different ethnic origin. And those who were of Palestine within the Jewish community, usually look down their nose at a little at those who were from outside. And this tension, if you like, carried over into the church. A part of the Jewish religion was to care for the poor as God directed them. One of the tithes of the Old Testament was specifically set aside for the care of the poor and the strangers. And these people normally would have been receiving their aid. Remember, there were talking days when they didn't have Centrelink and and, uh, all the other benefits that we enjoy in our society. These people would normally have been receiving their aid, these widows, these who had no one to support them, no one to care for them. They would have been receiving that from the temple. But now... They're out of the temple amongst these new group of Christians and it became a problem that the church now needed to address. You find that in every revival that happens, every movement of God that happens, the Christian church then becomes in the forefront of providing material needs of people. You go back through the time of the Wesleys and into the, into the 19th century, men like Spurgeon and Muller and other great men of God. What did they do apart from preaching the gospel? They built orphanages and they built hospitals and they provided for the poor and the needy. But it's not just about food. Our version here says... They missed out on their, on their uh, daily ministration of food. It wasn't not just that. It was obviously other, the Greek just says the daily ministration. The disciples referred to the fact that they would not wait on tables or didn't need to wait on tables, which would suggest that obviously food was involved. But this thought of caring for people is something that is far greater than that. Because if we have a servant heart, then... We will want to care for others. We will go out of our way to help the needy amongst us. 
It goes even deeper than that. A servant heart will cause people to be accepting of other people, whether they might agree with everything they do or not. And very often, those of us who've been in the church all our lives, who were brought up in the church, sometimes find it difficult to embrace others who perhaps have lived all their lives out of the church and suddenly we find them coming in. There needs to be that heart of love, there needs to be that heart of compassion, that heart of oneness that reaches out to them just as Jesus did and just as the early disciples did. Later on this morning, we, as is our custom, on the first Sunday of the month, we share together around the Lord's table. It's interesting to me that the instruction to share the Lord's table, take the bread and remember my body, take the cup and remember my blood that was shed, is only given four times in the New Testament, three times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. As the, as the disciples simply recounted what Jesus has done. The only other instruction that's given about the Lord's table, and you'd think there'd be more, wouldn't you? It'd be more important. Only the one is given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 in the context of a divided body. He just finished talking to them about all the divisions that had come in their church because of the misuse of gifts. He then addresses a problem that when they came for their love feasts, some people ate and drank in plenty while in the same room others were going hungry. He said, this isn't right. When I was younger and uh, I'd have communion and usually there'd be a time of prayer where we would search your heart to make sure you're coming uh, without any sin in your life and I'd sit there thinking to myself all the sins I'd committed and I'd need to forgive But Paul's not talking about that. There was only one sin that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 and it was the division that was among them because he said you don't understand the nature of the Lord's body. The nature of the Lord's body is that he's one, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. And the servant heart will cause us to take up that oneness in our deep, deep desire and love for one another. So what happened? Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The 12 disciples said, this has become our big job. (laughs) We're ministering the word and already there are thousands of people responding. And wisely, when this problem came, up until then it would appear that they had been ministering uh, these uh, daily ministrations. It would appear that perhaps they had been responsible for it. And like Moses, they found themselves swamped with all these responsibilities. In Exodus 18, we find that Moses was overcome by all that he had to do. 
Unfortunately, he had a wise father-in-law who said to him, Moses, Moses, this is ridiculous. You're trying to do too much. Why don't you appoint some other people to do half these things that you're doing and you just get on with doing what you're supposed to be doing? And that's the conclusion the disciples came to, the 12 of them. Not because their job was more important than making sure the widows got a fair deal, but because it was the job God had given them to do. And there are a number of things, three things I would suggest that just come to mind as we think of this. The first of all is the divide that we often make between the secular and the spiritual. When we were in Ethiopia, it was a bit of a joke amongst some of the missionaries that they'd do carnal work for a while then they'd go and do some spiritual work. I remember one chap that I worked with had been building a, a chookyard to house the uh, chickens that we raised to help the locals uh, build up their stocks of, of chickens. And then he, we also had a Bible school. And I remember him saying to me one day, well, I've done enough carnal work for today, now I'll go and do some spiritual work, i.e. Uh, preparing for his Bible school class. When I was growing up, I knew a woman called Monica Farrell, a lot older lady that I was just a young man. She was one of God's characters. She was Irish. She was the only convert out of a huge family, a Roman Catholic family, who uh, all her brothers and sisters were priests and, and uh, nuns. She had a great sense of humour. She was about as wide as she was tall. Now I remember was telling us once that during the war she was involved with a prayer meeting for praying for the troops. And in the particular church, the room that was used for the prayer meeting was also used by a group of ladies who used to do sewing for the troops. And one day the two groups sort of met because one was either running early or the other was running late, but they intertwined a bit and there was a bit of tete-a-tete between them. You can imagine, what are they still doing here? And one lady rather pompously said, well, we're doing something practical. We're, we're uh, making pyjamas for our troops. To which Monica replied, well, we're praying that God will keep breath in their bodies so they can wear your pyjamas. <laughs> and one of our problems is that we very often make the difference between what we class as spiritual service and secular service. When if we have a servant heart, everything we do for Christ is service. Or it should be. My ministry of the word this morning is acceptable to God on the same level as the ministry of those who will distribute the elements in communion and those who later will serve us with a cup of tea or coffee. The second thing we notice here is the increasing variety now of gifts, spiritual gifts that begin to be used. The apostles had 
use gifts that God had given them of healing, of miracles, and so on. But now they're saying, look for us men who have gifts in other directions who will be able to minister and care for what has to be done at this particular time. And of course, when we look at the three passages in the Bible, in Corinthians, in Romans and in Ephesians, we find a great raft of gifts, various ones, different ones. And we err when we think that some are more important than others because they're all designed for the body. And as Paul reminds us in Corinthians, every part of the body has its correct function. I remember once when I was working in accident emergency in another hospital in another town, the ambulance brought in a man one day who had just collapsed. He was unconscious and it was discovered that basically what had happened was that the part of his brain that controls his respiratory system, his breathing, had just stopped. And eventually his body was taken to Adelaide and used for transplants. Now, when we look at our body and we preen ourselves and we prepare ourselves and we put our face on and we build up our muscles, we don't usually think about the bit that kills us to breathe, do we? But it's pretty important. And that's the argument that Paul uses in Corinthians when he says every part of the body has a part to share, a a place to share and a part to play. And then we see the disciples organising the church body, if you like. Directing the church to choose the men who should do this work. And then having chosen them, blessing them. It says in verse 6 that they gave their blessing, they laid hands on them to signify that they were doing two things. They were blessing the choices that the church had made and they were transferring their responsibility to these men who had been chosen. One of the reasons we have so many different denominations is on differences of opinion in church government. How does a local body work? How does a church work? In the Old Testament, it was easy. God spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to the people. Joshua and the others. Come to the New Testament. The Lord Jesus chooses these 12 disciples as the ones who would proclaim the gospel. They appointed others who then were led by them. The, the, the Bible says that, that uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, separate out Barnabas and Saul. I want them to, to go and minister the word. As they went, they appointed elders. As time went by, the church grew. Then the responsibility of the church organisation, the responsibility of the church functioning properly becomes the corporate responsibility of the body. That's why we have a constitution. 
not just to satisfy the demands of the Corporation Act so that we protect ourselves against others in a litigious society, but so the corporate wisdom of the church is put into play as to how we appoint people, how we do things. And here the the disciples are involving the church. They're using their God-given responsibility and saying, you choose the men, you show them to us, and we will bless them and encourage you in their use. And then we look at verse 4, the requirements for ministry of these seven. Brothers, choose seven men, verse 3, from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. The word that's used there for known means they've demonstrated it. It's been witnessed to them. It's been witnessed to you. It's the same word as witnessing, marturos. They've already witnessed that their men are capable of doing this job. Choose them out. It's interesting they didn't say, find some good economic managers. Find those who've got good business skills, those who are good organisers, but what? Those who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And the word kai which is used to join those two, is a very strong dividing word. So when it says full of, it's referring to both the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. To be filled with the Spirit of God is essential for any service we do for God. The service that God blesses is the service that is under the control of of the Holy Spirit. A life that demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit as God controls that life and works through it. And full of wisdom. The Bible has much to say about wisdom. I've just been reading the book of Proverbs recently. A lot of it's just good common sense. Unfortunately, a fairly scarce commodity sometimes. You see, knowledge is the accumulation of facts. But wisdom is knowing what to do with that knowledge. You can have your head full of Bible verses. You can have your head full of understanding of the scriptures. You can have your head full of of knowing which particular verse fits with another verse But if you don't know the fullness of the Spirit of God making you wise in understanding it and applying it, then it's all not of much use. The Lord Jesus said a very interesting thing in Luke chapter 16 and verse 8. He said, The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Sometimes he's saying worldly people are a lot smarter than Christians. And unfortunately, sometimes, as Christians, we're not always wise. And one of the tragedies is that sometimes that lack of wisdom and those stupid things that get done are often done when people claim to be doing it in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's a double whammy. Now he says, 
They say, find me when who are full of the Holy Spirit. Men who are allowing the Spirit of God to control their lives and men who've demonstrated that. Seek out men who are full of wisdom. We're told in verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. The two things that strike me about this group of men, one is that they weren't just men who were capable of organising breakfast. They had many other gifts as well. We know about Stephen. Cam preached about him last week. Full of the Holy Spirit, working signs and wonders and miraculous signs among the people. We know that Philip, or we know that uh, Philip rather, that was Stephen, sorry. We know that Philip was an evangelist, that God used him to touch others' lives. If you look at history and read, uh, you can Google it as I did, and it claimed to know everything. A number of these men were also martyred later on in history. They were a part of the body, they had many gifts, but they had wisdom and they had the Holy Spirit and they were chosen for this task. The other thing that struck me as I read this was they're all Greek names. One of them perhaps could be a Roman name, Prochorus, but the rest of them are all Greek names. What did the church do? His Here's the question, here's the problem. Choose out seven men to sort out this difficulty between the Greek-speaking people and the Hebrew-speaking people and they choose all Greek people to do it? Why, that wouldn't happen in the world and it wouldn't happen in many churches these days either. Well, let's make sure we've got even numbers. Let's make sure that we do this properly. But the church as a whole were so full of love and grace that they said, let these men look after their widows. Let these men care for them. And so the word of God spread. Every day as we live out our lives, God takes us through trials and difficulties to test our faith. Every day we have a test to pass. You look back through the history of the Old Testament and God says to the people of Israel, why did I let you wander around these 40 years in the wilderness? To test you and to prove you, to see what was in your heart, to see whether you love me or not. And every time we're faced with some difficulty, some problem, some circumstance in our life, we have a test to pass. We choose God's way or our way. And here this church, they pass the test. They pass the compassion test. In love, they chose people who they knew would care for all of the people, whether they were Greeks or Jews or Hebrews. didn't make any difference, and they trusted them. And we're told they were presented to the church, and the elders prayed over them. They laid their hands on them. They transferred the responsibility of this particular task to these seven men. 
In a moment, we're going to share around the Lord's table. This table of love, this table of the body. We think of Paul's words, as we do so, it's important to remember the nature of the Lord's body. That body racked with pain, that body racked with torment, that body given out as a servant in order that we might be one with God. And as we do so, let's simply wait on God and ask him to show us anything in our life at all. Not that we might be doing this or doing that, but anything at all that is interfering with our love for others, interfering with the oneness of the body, any attitude of heart, any action, anything that stops that full flow of the Spirit of God through his body. I'd ask those who are going to assist at communion if they come and take their place now, then we'll have a few moments of prayer as we examine our hearts, then we'll share together around the Lord's table.